have you here. And uh, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to the second chapter of Acts. And we're going to be in the last part uh, that we are making our way through the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts. Um, we told you when we started this series, we were going to be looking at, at Jesus' um, comment when he said that he would build his church. And I mentioned to you that when Jesus said he would build his church, that, that that Greek word for church is the Greek word, anybody remember? Ekklesia, right? right? And it just means a gathering or a group of people. Um, sometimes it's referred to as a called out group. But Jesus says that he's going to build a movement, a group of people that will be called his church. And uh, this book that we're reading was written by a guy named Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Um, it begins after the, um, after the resurrection of Jesus, covers a 40-day period where Jesus appears to the disciples, and then um, the, the ascension of Jesus, the coming of the Spirit. At Pentecost, that we looked at a couple weeks ago, and then last weekend we looked at the sermon that Peter preached at Pentecost, and today we're going we're gonna to continue on. Yeah, I should probably advance. There we go. And, uh, and I, let me read this for you. Uh, if you have um, your Bibles, it's actually not this uh, passage, but let me read it for you. I just want to read the context of where we're going to be tonight. Starting in verse 41, it says this, Now those who accepted his message, at, uh, was Peter's message that we talked about last week, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the number of the, of the church that day. And, and now I want you to listen to this, this description. And this is, a, this is a piece of literature, by the way, that we refer to as descriptive, not prescriptive. And the difference would be that it just, it describes a situation, but it does not necessarily prescribe um, something that we should do. And we'll talk more about that. But notice what it says. It says, now, now these people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe and, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. And they gave to anyone as, as someone might have need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. If you'll notice in the passage, it really begins and it ends the, the same way. Um, we're going to look at these passages. It begins in verse 41. Notice it says, so those who received his word, the, the word of the sermon, were baptized and there were added that day. And that's in the, the passive sense in the Greek. In other words, they didn't do the adding. Someone else did. Someone else added them to the ecclesia that day. Who was that? Well, it tells us uh, at the end of this passage, it says, and the Lord was adding to the number day by day, those who were being saved. God was the one who was adding people in to the ecclesia. As people placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they were immediately added. Now today we're going to look kind of at what's between those, those bookends of verses 41 and 47. And we're going to look at what the people did. How the people responded to being added in to the ecclesia. And I think verse 42 to me kind of summarizes everything that's happening here. Um, it's a great summary statement. It, it says this. Um, it says they were continually devoting themselves. And so that's an important word. They were devoting themselves. And it says to four things. To the apostles teaching fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
So if you're kind of like to outline things, what you might note is that 41 and 47 are kind of the bookends. They say the same thing. Verse 42 is kind of a summary statement. And verses 43 through 47 will kind of unpack that and explain that for us, what's going on there. It says they were devoted, and that word devoted means to to continually attend to something. And and in this passage, it says they're devoted to four things. But I want you to notice as we go through this that those four things are very vague. Um, Luke isn't going to get into a lot of details. He's not going to tell us what they taught. He's not going to tell us how they taught. He's not going to tell us, you know, how they ate together or what they ate or uh, what they prayed or how they prayed. He's not going to tell us any of that. Instead, he just kind of focused on this big picture. He wants us to think a little bit about what it means to be a community, what it means to be an ecclesia, a, a family. Because in this book, I think Luke keeps challenging our ideas of what a church is. We asked you that first week, you know, what do you think of when you hear the word church? And some people think of a building, and some people think of an organization, and some people think of a denomination. Uh, but, but none of that stuff is in mind when we study this book. What is in mind? Well, he says there are four things that kind of describe this church. And uh, what I want you to realize going into it is, is these are not programs and this is so important. They, they didn't have any programs yet. This is just, this is what people did when they came to faith in Christ. It says they did four things. The first one is this. It says that they were, they were very devoted to teaching. That's the first thing that it says here. They were devoted to teaching. In verse 42, it says they were actually continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, again, notice it, it doesn't tell us what they taught. It doesn't say that. But notice what it does say um, in verse 43 as it's unpacking this idea about the apostles. It doesn't tell us what they taught, but it, it does say this. It says, now awe came upon every soul in that, in that first church. Uh, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So instead of mentioning what the apostles were teaching, I find this very interesting from an exegetical point of view, it, it mentions the miracles that they were working and the resulting awe of, of what was happening in that congregation. And, and the implication, as I've studied this, is simply this, that, that as the church was, was devoted to the apostles' teaching, they had in mind the miracles that were being done by the apostles, right? So, so they were kind of like, you don't really, you don't trifle with the apostles when they open their mouths because these guys work miracles. And next week, we're going to look at one of those miracles. But the idea here is that when they listened to the apostles, they were like on the edge of their seats. And, you know, they didn't have notes and handouts and they didn't even have the New Testament yet. All right. They're just kind of listening and, and, and taking all this in. And, and I'd imagine probably memorizing a lot of, of what was being taught there as they thought about the apostles and who they were. So, so what did the apostles teach, by the way, when we think a little bit about that? Well, they had, they, they had a mandate, actually, um, before the first church ever met. It was given by Jesus. If you remember that one, one of the great commission passages in Matthew 28, he told them this, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations,' that is, Christ's followers, those who believe in Christ, "'baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.'" And notice this, "'teaching them what? "'Teaching them to observe,' or some of your translations will say "'obey,' which is also a very fair translation there, "'teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you.'" And so Jesus instructs the disciples to teach people his words and, and the things that he taught and the things that he said and, and, and the things that he did and to teach those to people and teach principles and then to have people obey those teachings and those 
principles. So the apostles, and we know this even from last week when we studied uh, Peter's very first sermon, the first sermon in the church, the apostles would teach the words of Jesus, but they would also reach back into Old Testament passages and, and they would pull those out and show how those were fulfilled in Jesus. This is an interesting time because remember, they don't have a New Testament yet like you and I have. Now, as I thought about that this week and thought about what is the, what's the role of this um, apostle kind of teaching in the church and how does it relate to us, I kind of broke it down this way. I would say there's, there is a place for all of us where we need to have kind of a private time in God's word. And, you know, today we usually call that devotionals, right? And we, we break out our Bible and alone, maybe in the morning or the evening, or, you know, depending on what kind of uh, pers- person you are, you, you open up the word, you read a little bit, maybe you get a, a daily bread devotional or another book and you read along and you typically you'll study uh, topics of, that are of interest to you or books that are of interest to you and meditate on scripture. And uh, there, the Bible's very clear. We all need that kind of daily time alone with God in his word. And then there's a, a second maybe kind of way we get in the word, and I call that uh, maybe small group Bible study, and that's where uh, maybe we get together with some other people and we, we study specific topics um, that are personally relevant to us because, you know, we like to do that. And maybe it's in a grow group or maybe it's in a youth group or in a Bible study, but it may be with, you know, if you're a guy with other men or, or if you're a woman with other women, or maybe if you're a, a, a teenager, you like to get together with other teenagers and discuss those topics or if you're single or married. And so there's, a I think, an important place for all of us to get together in a small group kind of situation. And typically we'll study, you know, very specific topics that relate to us. And uh, when you go into the small groups, that that makes sense because we need to do that somewhere. But that's not what they're talking about here. What they're talking about here is kind of the the large group, all ecclesia, if you will, gathering and studying scripture. And that's kind of what we do in here, because what we do in here is kind of a general all age topic, you know, kind of thing. And we don't, we don't just talk about teenager issues or, or women issues or father issues or whatever. We don't, we don't do that. Usually we just do kind of big group stuff because we need a place like that where we can get together and, and talk about the Bible and study the Bible as an ecclesia and, and grow together in our knowledge of God. And that's part of what we're doing as we get into God's word. We're getting to know God better. But when we do this together, we're not just, we're not just growing closer to him, we also have the opportunity to grow towards each other as well. See, now sometimes when we study the Bible together as a big group, um, and we discuss, you know, we, we study doctrine and we study through books as we're doing right now, sometimes we'll study and we'll discover a truth. Like, for instance, on any given weekend, but especially it seems like during this series, I've had some of you come up and say afterwards, well, I already knew that thing that you talked about, but it was really good to be reminded of that again. And some of you would come up and say, I never heard that before. I never knew that before. And so, you know, what happens sometimes is we'll come together and we'll study a topic and uh, we'll discover a truth and we'll all agree on that. You know, we'll kind of all walk out and maybe it's the deity of Christ and we might all walk out after studying the Bible and say, we all agree that Jesus Christ was the son of God in the flesh or we, we all agree that he atoned for our sin on the cross. Or, you know, we might all walk out of here saying, we believe that salvation is through faith and it's by grace and you can't work for it. And those are all great times where God can build unity as we study the truth. Other times that that may not happen. Um, Sometimes we may study a topic and not reach complete unity. 
In fact, in this series, we have noticed that. Maybe some of you have missed it, but some of you have noticed that there are differing views at Gateway, for instance, on the Holy Spirit. And so I've had some people come up and say, I don't agree with you. <laughs> um, I've had some people come up and say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't agree with where you stand on baptism. I, I'm, I'm not into that. Now, those, those kind of things are going to happen for us as a church. And, and the question is, then, what, what do we do with that when we don't all agree? And that's where we need to learn how to live as a, as a family, as an ecclesia. And that's why these times are so important. Sometimes we're not all going to agree on certain doctrine. And we're going to have to learn how to live in the bond of love. It's important. We're going to have to learn how to live with imperfect people. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that there's some people in this church that aren't perfect? Don't look at them right now because that's awkward. But, you know, and, and, and not only that, but, but you're also imperfect. And there are some people around you right now that maybe you're at odds with in terms of some doctrine or some Bible understanding, and you're right, and they're not, but I can guarantee you there's probably some issue right now tonight where you don't know it all, and you don't have it right, and, and, and people around you have to be patient with you as well. And that's part, I, does that make sense? Obviously, as a church, we're going to have to make a, a choice in how we're going to deal with some of this stuff. Are we going to do it as a family, or are we not? You know, after I, I think, and I'm not always really good with like how long ago things happened, but I think I'd been here at Gateway about a year, year and a half or so. This actually happened twice with two different people. But on one occasion, I had somebody come up to me during the week. They were in the office and I had been teaching on spiritual gifts. And, um, and as we were teaching, I got into the issue um, of speaking in tongues uh, and a few things. And, and so the next week I had somebody in church come up to me and say, you know, pastor, um, I really don't agree with your view on spiritual gifts. Um, I don't agree with it. Uh, I don't think you're right. I don't think you're biblical. Now, you have to understand, I, I went, where I went to college, um, you, those, were, those were fighting words, okay? You just, you live for moments like that. Because, I mean, you just couldn't wait for that to happen. And I'd been trained and primed and pumped and ready to fight. I had all my proof texts and I was, you know, I had my notes in my back pocket just waiting for somebody to challenge me. But here's what happened. The way this person said this, and this is actually, they, they followed up and they said this. They said, but I love you and I respect you and you're the pastor in this church. And so I'll support you. And I'd never, ever had a conversation about spiritual gifts with somebody who disagreed with me and was so gracious before. It was really disappointing in a way because you can't fight. You can't, you can't fight with a person like that. But I will tell you this. That conversation really challenged me to the core because I realized, you know what? There's some areas that I, I maybe I'm not, I'm not right. And I don't have it figured out yet. And the question really, the question is not, will we have disagreements? That's not the question. The question is, how will we deal with those disagreements? I'm not talking about the deity of Christ or salvation, but I'm talking about all the other stuff, all the other auxiliary issues. How will we learn to deal with that? And, and the reason this is so important, because here's a really stupid church strategy for, for unity, okay? Um, avoid all the topics that are controversial, all right? So we'll just avoid them. And, and, and you see churches that do that. They never talk about anything up front that might 
you know, hurt somebody's feelings or where there might be a disagreement. And what you end up with, though, is you don't end up with real unity, do you? You end up with this fake kind of pseudo uh, unity that's just based on avoidance. It's like, have any of you belonged to a family where when you get together for the holidays, there's just certain things you can't talk about? You just can't talk about Uncle Ed or whatever, because if you do, or politics, whatever, there'll be a big fight and a knockdown drag out, so you just don't talk about those, all right? And, and the question is, is that really what we want to be like as a church? Or is God bigger than that? And is the Holy Spirit more powerful than that? We don't want to be a church where we just avoid all the topics where we might have disagreement. And at the same time, we don't want to be a church full of hard-hearted, know-it-all people who just love to argue and debate and condemn with people who have different views. We don't, we, somewhere in between is where I think God wants us to be and where we want to be. But not one or the other. I think a better way for church is where we study the word and we don't avoid the difficult stuff and we discuss it, but also a place where we're humble, where we're humble and realize we have things to learn and where there's grace, where we have as much grace for one another as Christ has for us. Because as we study the truth, as we discover the truth, it will either lead to unity based on agreement of doctrine, which will happen at times, or we'll learn to agree and live in the, in the bond of love. And in this first ecclesia, you know, we, we understood that Jesus' words in this first church, they, they, were the, they were the center of that church, and they are the center of our church as well. The things that Jesus taught, the things that he said, those are the things that we study. Those are the things that we discuss. Those are the things that we obey. And that was a central part of that first church. They were devoted to that, but they were devoted to a second thing. They were devoted to something called fellowship. Now, when I say that, it may be confusing for you because some people, when they read this passage, they think the whole passage is about fellowship. And then he, he talks here about something very specific called fellowship. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word fellowship, you know, um, whether you think of a potluck or, you know, maybe I, when I think of fellowship, a lot of times I think of when I was back when I was in high school and college, um, Especially when I was in college, I was living away from home, um, living at school, eating cafeteria food, which uh, wasn't just good. It probably wasn't good for you. And um, I would go to a church, a church on the weekend. And, and when I was in college, every weekend when I went to church, everybody at church knew that I was a college student. And I always got invited to somebody's house for dinner on the weekend. And when I look, when I think back, I always think of that as, as fellowship, you know, getting invited to dinner after church, hanging out with people, talking, um, potlucks, go, you know, some of you, you know, you go out to, to dinner after church here and think of that as fellowship, you know, and, um, Sometimes, some of you think of church events as times of fellowship. When I think of fellowship, one of the things I think of is um, in my mind, I picture what happens in here after church because I love that. Just people hanging out and talking and being with one another and, and praying for one another. And some of you go to Las Dos and, you know, I suppose that counts as fellowship. And um, when, I think of, when I think of fellowship, I actually, because it's kind of my personality, but I always, I always associate this with fellowship because I, I, love, I love to go to Starbucks and hang out and just have conversations with people where I can get to know what's going on in your life. And, and um, you know, 
And, and it's all great stuff. All of that stuff is, is it's great, it's wonderful, but it's not actually, I think, what Luke is talking about here uh, when he talks about fellowship. He's talking about something a, a little more radical than all of that. And notice in verse 42, he says, now they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. Some of your translations will say to the fellowship. Um, and that word fellowship is a word you're probably familiar with. Have it in your notes. It's the word koinonia. And the word koinonia, and I've actually changed it uh, up there on the screen. The word koinonia means to have in common, or to share or, or together with. And, and I want you to notice how Luke unpacks the idea because remember what I said, he's going to unpack all of these ideas. And he unpacks it for us in the next couple of verses. Notice what he says. Now all who believed were together and they had all things in common. Now that word common there is the word koina. And that comes from the same root word as koinonia. The word koina simply uh, means to, to be that which is in, in common, which is exactly how they've translated it here. It says, and they began, what does that mean? They began selling their property and they began selling their possessions and were sharing them with anyone as they might have need. So it says that they, had, they were, they were uh, devoted to this koinonia, and they held all things in koina, that is, in, in common. So in that, in that first church, fellowship to them meant that they had all of their stuff in common. Some people have called this, they think this is some form of communism. It's really more a form of communism, if you will. And these believers are so bonded together that if, if one person was in need, another person would look around their house and see, do I have anything I don't need? And I could sell that on eBay and then take the cash and, you know, help them out. And of course, this text, let's be honest, can be a little bit threatening for those of us who have a lot of stuff. And I've noticed over the years that Christians can be really quick to defend um, themselves. Um, oh, I read whole books on that and articles. People who, for instance, will point out in this passage um, that there's no command here. We're not commanded here to sell our excess stuff, and that's true. Um, remember, this is descriptive, not, not prescriptive. Um, people say there's no command anywhere in Scripture to relinquish all of your private possessions and give them away. Um, there's no command in Scripture that we have to sell our property and our possessions. That's, that, that's voluntary. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, we'll see that that's exactly true. To, to, to do that is a voluntary act. But what we should note is that there's a reason why Luke recorded this. And I think he recorded it because it was admirable. It was, it was praiseworthy. It looked like Jesus, didn't it? I mean, it was sacrificial love like Jesus had. And it was, it was Christ-like in its character. It was a picture of how Christians who stand in awe. And that's kind of what's in the middle of this passage is these people stood in awe of God. That, when people stand in awe of God, this is, how they, this is how they handle their wealth. And this is how they respond to other people who are in need. And this whole idea of, of Christians using their possessions for the needs of others is one of the great passions of this writer, Luke. In fact, it's interesting because Luke alone has some stories in his gospel that, that no other gospel writer has. For instance, Luke alone tells the story of the Good Samaritan. 
Because those were the kind of things that Luke was really keyed into. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? There's a guy, there's a Jew traveling down a road one day and he gets, you know, some thieves come up on him and they mug him and they leave him for dead. And then um, this kind of religious guy walks by on the other side of the road and just leaves him there. And then another guy comes by and then remember the the low-life Samaritan comes by and and he takes the guy and bandages him up, puts him on his donkey and takes him to the Best Western and pays in advance, you know, and has a doctor come in and visit him, right? Remember that? And then... Jesus asks the question after he tells that story. He says, now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And, and the expert in the law said, well, the one who had mercy on him, the one who helped him. And then Jesus said, well, go and do likewise. See, this was kind of one of the big themes that Luke liked to, 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 to talk about. Luke alone tells the story uh, of the parable of the rich Fool. Remember one time Jesus was talking about selfish greed and he tells a story about this guy who was super, super wealthy. And then um, it, one year he's so wealthy that he doesn't even have enough storage to store all the stuff. So he builds a, you know, mini storage place of his own and so he can store all of his stuff. And, and uh, in the story, Jesus says this, he says, the guy says to himself, I'm going to just sit back and I'm going to say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy and eat and drink and be merry and the idea is that all around him are people hungry and people hurting and people starving. But God says to him, you fool, you will die this very night and then who will get all that you have? Luke, more than any other New Testament writer, stresses the danger of loving stuff more than loving people. And in Acts chapter 2, this miraculous change is taking place in people. Their, their attitudes towards their possessions are changing. Their attitudes towards other people are changing. Love is developing in this first church that uh, there, there's people who, who previously avoided each other and, and hated each other who are now friends with each other because Jesus is changing them. And in Jerusalem during this time, um, jobs are scarce uh, there's a lot of foreign travelers. Uh, if you remember the context of last week, people who were in town for Pentecost who came to faith in Christ and were told that they just kind of hung out for a while. And after a while, these travelers ran out of money. So now how are they going to eat? And we're told that a lot of destitute widows are joining the church, but the people in the first ecclesia responded by voluntarily sharing everything that they had because fellowship isn't a church event. Fellowship isn't a potluck. Fellowship is when we have our lives in common with each other. When we see someone in need, we're willing to make a personal sacrifice in order to live a life in common with them. So they had fellowship. And it says the third thing that they had going on in this church, the third thing that created wonderful community was the breaking of bread, right? So now some of us, we're getting to the part of the text that we like. Um, So it says in verse 42 again, uh, they were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of, of bread. Now, the theory goes that they may be talking about one of two things here in breaking of bread. It may refer to people eating meals together, um, which is, you know, what a lot of us would like to think it means. And I think it, I, it actually is talking about that. And some think it's referring to the Lord's Supper, which is also referred to as the breaking of bread. My guess is it probably has both of those things in mind. That people would go from house to house and they would have meals together. It was just kind of a, you know, you ever been to one of those progressive meals? This is just like it happens every day, okay? So they're like going from house to house and they would also celebrate communion while they were together. 
In verse 46, it unpacks it for us. It says, now day by day, uh, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. We get this idea. They're, they're going into homes and they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And so they would, they would eat meals together in, in different homes almost daily. And it's real, three things are happening when they do this. One of the things that happening, it's happening is that hungry people are getting a meal to eat. So undoubtedly, some of the people who are there don't have food for that day. So they're, they'd invite, you know, maybe a few people over who don't have anything to eat, maybe inviting a few friends over. And we know that relationships are being strengthened during that time. And then the Lord's Supper is likely being celebrated and they're remembering together the sacrifice of Christ for them. But I, I love what it says. It says they were doing it with gladness and sincerity of heart because they loved to be together and they loved to eat together and they they enjoyed the food and they enjoyed the conversation i there's just something about eating a meal together isn't it that kind of makes people a little more relaxed and 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 you know sit back and i i don't know how most of you are if somebody walks up to you and just leans right forward in your face and says tell me about your life you know i mean a lot of us are kind of standoffish but you know hey if we're eating a bagel it's not so bad and we can kind of slow it down a little bit and a shared meal is just a it's a great context where conversations can naturally happen and, and needs become known and, and friends discover how they can support each other. In Romans twelve thirteen, it tells us this, share with God's people who are in need and practice. Notice practice hospitality. Now that the word hospitality there means to add, literally to share with strangers. And now the context in Acts is a little bit bigger than that, but they were undoubtedly opening their homes to, to strangers because there were visitors and, and other people they wouldn't know. And now suddenly they're this, this big family of 3,120 people that are going from house to house, having this progressive, you know, dinner function every night. Um, but, and, and so I think they undoubtedly had strangers, but they probably had friends and neighbors in as well. And I need to say this because in our culture, we can miss this. Hospitality is not the same as entertaining people, all right? And in our culture, we're really into entertaining people, right? Hospitality and entertaining, entertaining guests is all about impressing people usually in our culture. It's about, you know, having the right house with the right decor and the right food and the right drink and the right, the right guest list, right? And that, and, and, but that's not what's going on here. Hospitality is different. Hospitality is, is where we focus on the other people, on being together with them, on, on encouraging them, on developing a relationship with them. Hospitality is focused on blessing them. Entertainment is usually, you know, focused on impressing them. Those are two different things altogether. But, but eating together, and I know this sounds weird, but, but eating together really is a great biblical discipline, right? So I don't know how, when I think about biblical disciplines, I think of daily reading and I think of prayer. And, but, so I'm kind of encouraged to hear that, you know, eating with people is a, is a discipline, a spiritual discipline, because it's a great way to practice scripture. It's a great way to, to bless people, to meet needs, to create a context for growing relationships. And this is something that they were devoted to. And the last thing it says that they were devoted to was prayer. Um, probably not surprising because we've already talked some about prayer and we're going to talk more about prayer in the weeks to come. But, but in the book of Acts, there are 31 occasions that are mentioned where the church gathers together to pray. And in the first 15 chapters... 14 chapters talk about people getting together to pray. And in verse 42, again, it says this, they were devoted 
to, to prayer. In fact, um, some of your Bibles will say literally they were devoted to the prayers. And sometimes people read that and they're like, you know, what was that about? How are you devoted to the prayers? And we know in the context that the people were still getting together and meeting at the temple daily. So, you know, they had their, the temple nearby and they would go. And apparently after they came to Christ, they would still go sometimes on a daily basis to the temple and or maybe to the synagogue where they would be involved in worship there and where they would um, the, the Bible, the Old Testament would be read aloud and they would have these these big group kind of they would call the national prayer times together. And they were doing that, but they were also praying when they went from home to home. And in verse 47, it tells us this, they were praising God. And, and that, that term there, praising God, I think is connected to this idea of praying together. It describes the way that they were, they were praying. When they got together, they would, they would talk about their lives and they might talk about, you know, what happened in their life that day. Remember, they're getting together every night. They're having dinner together with different people. They're telling stories and how's the job going and, you know, how's the, you know, how's the cat and, and how's your problems? And maybe they talked about politics and sports, but they also talked about God. And they didn't just talk about God. They would praise God. And the Jewish, in the Jewish culture back then, you, it was understood when you praised God, you did it in prayer. And so they would, they would not just talk about God, but they would talk to God together. And uh, in Ephesians, it tells us this. It says, now pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. It says we are to pray on all occasions. So when we're alone, you know, in, in, in the morning during a quiet time, we should pray. When we're on, the, on our commute to work, we should d- probably definitely pray, um, you know. And, but when we're with other believers, we should also pray together. In other words, when we get together, don't just talk about God. And after, you know, church tonight, some of you will get together and, you know, you'll have a crunch wrap supreme or something. And, you know, and you, maybe you'll talk about the sermon or you'll talk about scripture. And that's, that's awesome. You should do that. But notice it says they, they didn't just talk about God. They talked with God. We should involve talking with God in our relationships. And in fact, it says in the passage here, we should be praying for all the saints. You're, you're all of you who have a relationship with Christ, Christ you're, all, you're all saints. You're all, you're all holy ones. And, but how can we pray for each other? How can we know how to pray for each other if we don't ask? And so I think part of what he's saying here is, you know, we need to, we need to ask the people around us, how can I pray for you? What do you need prayer for? I, I would just ask you this, for all the people that you pray for on a daily basis, maybe the people you prayed for today, have you ever wondered, am I praying about the most important things in their life? Because sometimes we just assume we know how to pray for people. I think it's good sometimes when, you, when you're with people and fellowshipping with people, just ask them, what's the big prayer request in your life right now? If you're married, I would ask you, do you really know how to pray for your husband, for your wife right now? Have you asked them? For your kids, have you said, what's the big thing going on that I can, I can pray for, for your friends? And, and then don't just pray for people, pray with people. And that's what this church did. In Philippians, it tells us some different kinds of prayers. It says, don't be anxious about anything, but, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. It gives us three kind of prayers here. There's, there's the prayer, which is just kind of a worshipful, our Father in heaven kind of prayer. There's the petition uh, where we ask God for things, and it's okay to ask God for things. It's okay when you're with, to, to break out your list sometimes and say, God, here's what I need. And then there's the prayers of thanksgiving, where we thank God for the blessings in our life. Because prayer is powerful, prayer is effective, and praying for each other and with each other is a powerful way to build community in a church.
So as we think about these, these four disciplines, my question is, what, what is it that ties these four things together? Teaching of the word and sharing possessions and eating meals together and, and, and praying day after day. And I think it's found in verse 43. Notice what it says here. And, and awe came upon every soul. You know, I was thinking as I was reading this week that, that how often is that sense of awe missing? In the church today. Instead of worshiping a God who is awesome. And a God who is, who is fearsome. A God who is stunning. And, and at times a God who is shocking. How oftentimes the, the God to us and the church becomes something tame. Becomes something d- domesticated. And, and something that's just comfortable. And, and, and how many of us, instead of being renewed into the image of God, have, have created a God in our own image? Because the God of the Bible and the God of this first church was, was fearsome and awesome and, and shocking and did things at times that were, were stunning. And when you think about it, a lack of awe for God has an impact on the way we approach the Bible, doesn't it? And, and how we handle our possessions, and how we can trivialize fellowship, and how we can play more than we pray, and turn us into people who, who when we come to church, we just spend more time complaining about what we don't like instead of praising God for the good things. Where are the churches today that gather together and there's awe on every soul? Is it lacking because, because God is not powerful anymore? Is God not have great purposes anymore for the church? Is God not as active in the church today as he was back then? I don't don't think so. I think God is just as active as he's always been. I think part of the problem is for us that that we just become so distracted and have grown so dull to the wonder and the work of God. I tell you, over the last couple of months, I feel like God has just opened my eyes around here here to to him. and, And it's been so great to see so many baptisms And every time I see a baptism, it just reminds me about how great and shocking God is at times. He's still saving people the same way that he always has. And and the way he adds people to the ecclesia. Last week, I got kind of for me a rare opportunity to be up here and be involved in leading worship. And that's such a, it was such an exciting thing for me because I got to be up here and see your faces. And quite frankly, it was almost shocking for me to be up here. I haven't been up here for a while to see some of you and to see your faces and to see how you were worshiping God. It was so encouraging to me because I see God in that. Sometimes after church, you know, I see some of you hanging around and talking and laughing and praying for one another. And it reminds me about how great God is and how much he's working. When I see what God's doing in this church, when I see what he's doing in you, sometimes I know it sounds silly, but sometimes I go on Facebook and I see some of the things that you guys write to each other. And it reminds me that God is good and God is working and he's working in you. And that's exciting to me. See, my prayer for Gateway is not that we become that first church. There's so many people today go, oh, I think God wants us to become, you know, just like that first church. And, but you have to understand that that first church was not perfect. Okay, they had, some, they had some big problems in that first church as we'll look at. I don't think that's what God has for us here. But I do think that God wants us to be a church that is filled with awe for him. 
that believes that he is a big God and a great God and a stunning God. And that we would be people who expectantly dig into his word. And that we would be people who more and more have all things in common. And people who more and more break bread together. And that prayer would be everywhere in this church. And I'll just tell you this as, as we close. That the, the way that most of these things happen, quite frankly, it's not through programs. And it's not through, through professional staff. And it's not through events. It's through you. And it's through me. Because that's where the true fellowship, the true community comes from. And sometimes I hear people say today, oh, well, the church just doesn't have the community it used to have. And to that, I would say, you know, that's entirely up to us. Because if we want to be that kind of community, we can be that kind of community. Amen? Amen.